When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The night may be long and the dark may be deep, but the answers are there to be found. Whether it's the normal, the abnormal, or the paranormal, you're in the right place. Let's go beyond reality. Sometimes it's the normal, sometimes it's the abnormal, and sometimes it's the paranormal, but it's always beyond reality. Welcome to the program. It's Beyond Reality Radio. I'm your host, J.V. Johnson. Thanks for being here tonight. We've got another great show lined up for you. We're going to be talking about something that uh, may be a little bit frightening, actually. It certainly has been uh, a traumatic experience for the experiencers of alien hybrid breeding. Our guest tonight, John Sumple, is the producer of an upcoming film called Extraordinary The Seeding. And we'll be talking about this documentary, which explores reproduction experiments that are carried out as part of an alien hybrid breeding program. This is something that's very, very uh, disturbing in many ways. And we've had folks on the show before that have talked about these types of ideas. But this documentary gets right to the heart of it. So we'll be doing that. We'll also be taking your calls uh, later in the show in the second hour at 844-687-7669. There's a couple of things going on just wanted to bring up. Florida residents, of course, are bracing for what looks to be a very, very troubling Hurricane Dorian, and it threatens to make landfall on Monday, Labor Day. It's expected to be a Category 4 storm when it actually hits, and they're not quite sure where it's going to hit. Somewhere between the Florida Keys and southern Georgia, that pretty much means the whole east coast of Florida. It could fall anywhere. So we, of course, say to all our Florida friends, we do have several affiliates in Florida, please Listen to your local and state officials and heed any calls for evacuations. Of course, our thoughts and prayers are with you and hope you're all safe. Apple announced the launching of the iPhone 11. That'll be on September 10th. This new model is expected to have the same design as current models, which is a departure from previous introductions. Apple has never gone three model years in a row with the same design, but it is now. Um, the new model will feature a better camera, faster processors, and a s- operating system upgrade. But uh, And I think it's going to be uh, 5G compatible. But there are, I'm not sure about that, but there are uh, some people saying it's, it's lagging behind its competitors. Hmm, we'll have to see how it does. Workers in Israel are completing a three-year project in, a, in building a massive underground catacomb. That project is expected to provide 23,000 underground catacomb um, graves in an effort to help ease a shortage of land for cemeteries in Israel. It's obviously a small country, and it's getting more and more crowded, and land is at a premium, so they're going deep underground for burials. Uh, Interesting stuff going on around the world. Um, Looking ahead on the show, we've got a best of tomorrow night, as every Friday is. Then Monday, Rob Young will be here. He's an author and an adventurer. He'll be talking about the Cloud Warriors of Peru, Poisons from the Jungle, and his own paranormal experiences. And Tuesday night, Chris Newby, a science writer, will shed new light on the genesis of Lyme disease. We've talked about this. Is Lyme disease just a natural virus that has 
become um, more prevalent, more common? Or is it a biological weapon gone wrong, released from a laboratory somewhere inadvertently? Or maybe it was released as part of an experiment. Who knows? But Chris Newby will be our guest Tuesday night next week, and she will talk about this very topic. And then Wednesday night, Doug Sear uh, Ignano will be here. He's the author of Americans' Conspiracies and Cover-Ups. He'll show how conspiracies have been transforming U.S. politics for the last 100 years. A lot of great shows coming up on Beyond Reality Radio. And if you have trouble finding a radio station in your market at this point, although we're adding radio stations all the time, a great way to listen to the show live is to join our YouTube stream. Just go to YouTube.com, search for JV Johnson, and you'll find it. The stream also features a chat room with a lot of activity. It's a lot of fun. Please subscribe. Subscribe to the YouTube channel. And click the notification icon if you'd like to be notified of live streams or video uploads as they occur. And then also, um, I'll send you to our Facebook page, Beyond Reality Radio, to give that a like, and JV Johnson, or you can search it by JVJ Paranormal on Facebook and give that a like as well. We like to have all of our listeners be part of that online social media community as well. All right, we're going to take a break. When we come back, we'll bring our guest in. Again, tonight we're talking with John Sumpel. It's Beyond Reality Radio. Look out, Rochester. Scaricon is coming for you. The Northeast's leading fan convention for all things pop culture is celebrating its ninth year at the Rochester Riverside Hotel, October 18th through the 20th. Scaricon brings an amazing group of celebrities, panel discussions, film screenings, great vendors, and amazing parties. It's a weekend of fun from start to finish and it's family friendly. For more information, visit Scaricon.com and check us out on Facebook. Use the promo code BRR at checkout to save 20% on your admission. That's Scaricon.com, October 18th through the 20th in Rochester, New York. John Sumple is the producer of a new film called Extraordinary, The Seating. John, welcome to Beyond Reality Radio. It's an honor to have you here tonight. Thanks for having me. Really looking forward to it. Yeah. So you're coming to us live from Peru, I understand. Is that where you are? That is. That is correct. I am in Peru. It's amazing what this technology can do. You sound like you're right it next is, door. <laughs> so uh, tell us about uh, becoming a filmmaker. When did you decide to do that and how long have you, have you been doing it? Oh, the, it's, a, it's a long, long story that started with uh, a desire 30 years ago, probably 35, 40 years ago, a long time ago when I had a desire to do visual storytelling, but just didn't really have the means, didn't go to school for it. And it was kind of like a second thought that I wanted to do it. I actually wound up started doing uh, corporate videos that are more on the humorous side uh, back in the 80s and 90s and uh, had an opportunity to develop a concept for a paranormal show back in, it was 97, we put together a proof of concept, Jack Roth and I, and Jack wanted to apologize that he couldn't be here. He is in Orlando and staring down uh, the, oh, yeah. the, the sights of the hurricane. I think you could draw a straight line in yeah. the center of the cone of death and it would go right over his house. So uh, he works, one of his clients is the county, Orange County, and they need him on call tomorrow morning. Understandable, so he, yeah. he couldn't do the late night. But uh, I, I was involved in uh, putting together a concept show with him on that we called Hauntings. And this was in 97. We pitched it around to some production companies and to some networks to no avail. But the concept was very, very simple because it's been since uh, turned into an entire uh, uh, industry. Yes, it uh, sure we, has. Had, uh, we had uh, uh, the story idea that we had is we would get uh, paranormal investigators coupled with uh, psychic mediums, and we would go into haunted locations and do live 
uh, you know, captured live investigations. So we pitched that around. We had a half an hour concept, uh, proof of concept. We pitched that around and nobody was interested. So this was in 97. An idea, six years later, yeah, an idea before its time, for sure. Time, it definitely was. We were about six years too early. Because <laughs> um, when Most Haunted took off, it just changed changed the game. Uh, but uh, so we we kind of stuck with the idea that we wanted to eventually do something in um, paranormal slash yeah, paranormal was really what we were kind of looking at and Jack w- was the passionate uh, 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 I guess researcher and student of paranormal uh, investigations and had written a couple of books on uh, ghosts of uh, uh, on battlefields and done investigations took groups on investigations to battlefields so that was a, a in his wheelhouse in. Uh, we always talked about doing something again, and then uh, he came to me back in I think it was like early 2009 and said he was interested in doing a kind of a road trip documentary around uh, south in southwestern United States of spots that were known to be uh, UFO sightings and UFO crash landings and things like that. So um, he eventually wound up going to a UFO conference with. Um, I think it was Stephen Greer's uh, conference he had in Denver back in uh, the summer of 2009, and he was introduced to a couple of investigators that were involved with uh, the San Romanek story, and uh, it was uh, Alejandro Rojas and Chuck Zukowski. And uh, he got introduced to it. He saw some of the evidence. He called me up uh, from there and he said, I think I have a story that we should explore. So that's kind of where it all started. The visual storytelling, the desire to do it had always been there, but we hadn't found the right opportunity. And then once that was presented to us, we, we went down, you know, deep dive down the rabbit hole. You know, most of us as kids grow up, uh, and at one point in our lives, we take a lot of notice of the sky above us, particularly the nighttime sky. And occasionally we mm-hmm. see something up there that we're not sure what it is. We kind of get that tingly sensation that maybe we had a UFO sighting or something. And even more importantly, it could have been an alien type sighting. Um, but those, those experiences tend to last with us and they, they embed a curiosity within us that lasts and it leads to projects like this. Did you have that same experience? Yeah, I, I, I did. Um, I had a couple of experiences when I was younger, and uh, Jack and I actually talked about this this morning, um, specifically to how we kind of came together. But I, I had three sightings as a, as a kid, and I, from a very young age, so I think the first one was like eight or nine years old, and uh, two of the three, a lot of people, I grew up in Fairfield County, Connecticut, I actually went to Sandy Hook Elementary School as oh, a wow. child. Wow. Um, my mom worked there for 25 years. So uh, that area was actually a hotbed. If you're, you know, obviously, if anybody's who's into the haunted, haunted investigations, uh, Connecticut, that area, and Newtown in particular, is, is very well known for the hauntings in that area. So ha- I grew up uh, with friends that had haunted houses. I had seen a couple of sightings. So there was a part of me that I, I guess kind of took it for granted that those were things that everybody yeah. <laughs> experienced because it was a part of my my childhood. But two of the three UFO sightings were reported by you know hundreds. One was hundreds of people, and another one was a couple thousand people called in and reported to the local police. And there was some you know atmospheric conditions and the lights off the runways of Kennedy Airport created the anomaly, which was <laughs> impossible because it was you know a, a bright light in the sky type of scenario. Then I had a, th- a third uh, when I was about 12 years old, I saw 
a craft land in the woods near my house. So I was sitting on the front porch with a friend and we saw that. So there, I was kind of predisposed, I think, to, to being open to that possibility that we weren't alone. But uh, what really kind of kicked this off for us was uh, Jack went to the Myrtles Plantation on a, a, a trip with some friends back in 1995-96 and captured two very uh, impressive images, one of... Um, uh, it was like uh, um, plasma energy of, a, of the shape of a child, and another one was a, a disembodied spirit floating over a porch. That uh, it was one of those things for him that kind of pulled me into it. We were just becoming friends. He showed these to me when he got back. He said we need to go back there and do some investigations, and that's when it all started. So we we went back, and I think it was ninety six, November of ninety six, and captured some amazing things while we were there. EVP. We had gone back on more than one occasion and had that whole idea that uh, you know what we come to believe as the reality might not be exactly all there is. So that curiosity was peaked back in, in around that time frame, and it just really hasn't stopped since then. You know, I'm really impressed with uh, the, the fact that in 1997, you had this paranormal reality television concept um, that, again, as we said, was ahead of its time. But I'm also curious, uh, there weren't a lot of people that understood what maybe EVP were or, or even what a paranormal investigator was. Now, Jack and, and you were doing this, but did you have other people that you saw doing this? Or was this something that you was kind of uh, isolated and kept amongst yourselves? Yeah, I, I, I had never heard of it before. Right. And uh, when we went to, um, we wanted to go back to the Myrtles Plantation, but we said, well, let's make it more than just the Myrtles Plantation. I think it was the third time that I had gone back there. Jack and I had went that one time and we decided we'd go back again and we were going to document some stuff. So we hired a crew and uh, we, we uh, connected with a paranormal investigator in um New Orleans, you know, back at the time, his name was Larry Montz, and uh, he, his name might be familiar to people who who have done tours in New Orleans, you know, back in the day. But he also worked with a couple of um, psychic mediums that that were really good. One in particular was was incredible, and uh, she was the one that we used in the <clears throat> the concept that show that we developed. But I wasn't aware of anybody else that was doing anything in the in the the same light actually right. saying let's go out and do this so one of the things that i thought was interesting about this was that they would go in uh do the investigations uh on the on on the paranormal side just to do and do research to see what they could find out and then they would bring in a medium and the medium they would share no information with to see if they could validate any of the things that they found out when they did through their research and and, and it's visceral <laughs> when you're in a room with a medium who who basically uh you know uh, is is channeling energy that's in that space and you, it goes right through you and we thought we had a really good concept and uh, thought that it was going to be something that people would be interested in but at the same time when we showed it people were just kind of like thought it was just too fantastic it was too out there yeah, it's it's probably something I can put myself in the shoes of maybe some of these production companies or people that would be making these decisions and thinking, I don't understand this uh, yet. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. now everybody does. But at the time, it was probably just just too cutting edge. But uh, it's it's still fascinating. Nonetheless, we've got to go to break here in just about a minute and a half. But the film Extraordinary, The Seating, that's the second in a trilogy, right? 
Yes, it is. We The first one was uh, extraordinary, the Stan Romanek story. Now the seating uh, launches on September 3rd, and we finished production on the third one uh, earlier this summer, and we're moving into post uh, as soon as we finish the whole promo thing and get this the second one launched. Now, the, uh, the seating has uh, done, I think, the film festival circuit. You've won a lot of awards with this particular documentary. Mm-hmm. You must be proud of that. Yeah, we are. And, I'll, and after the break, I can go into a little bit more detail as to why, uh, you know, the, the the proudness is not about the, you know, the end product as a, a creative endeavor, but the impact that it's going to have is really what we're, we're most proud of. Um, you know, obviously, when you win an award, that's something to be uh, proud of and happy about. But you actually had a, a deeper pride uh, in the fact that this particular documentary is winning some festival awards. Yeah, I also wanted to let you know, too, that I'm the director and producer of the film. Gotcha, so director, too. Yeah. J, yeah, J3 Films produced it. I'm one of the partners in J3 Films where all three of us are producers, but I also did the direction of the film. And the reason why I say that, uh, you know, that there's a deeper pride with this is because when we were going through the process of, of working on this film, you know, I'll give you a little bit of a backstory is that after we finished the first film, I looked at that as my foot in the door and that, you know, now that I've got the, you know, the notch on the belt that I could do things, other things, and it wasn't just going to be genre specific. So I almost, you know, kind of made a, a, a statement to my partners that I, I, I don't know if I want to do another uh, UFO genre film. Uh, I would rather, you know, don't want to be pigeonholed type of thing. But we were given an opportunity because of the success of the first film um, to do another one. We were strongly encouraged by our distributor to to, to stay the course. Uh, and we had a little bit of seed money that allowed us to, to step into that. So I was reluctant initially. But once we started doing the research and once we started screening people on phone calls, I found out that this was this was a, a bigger uh, it's going to have a bigger impact than I had originally uh, uh, believed. And then once we got in front of people and we're doing the interviews, uh, you know, with these nine individuals that we spoke with for hours, you know, some we interviewed for two, three hours and others for 10, 12 hours. And when you're sitting across some, from somebody and you're hearing them tell the emotional, uh, psychological, physical, and in some way spiritual impact, that these experiences have, you start to see that it's more than just a story about the UFO and abduction and alien visitation phenomena. It's about the human condition. It's about people who are having experiences that we can't comprehend going through something so traumatic that it's disrupting their lives. So it became very apparent to me during the course of making the film that one of the messages that we had to deliver was one of empathy and compassion. So once the film was finished, I felt like, you know, I knew that it was, it, it, it hit the mark as far as that was concerned. And I was confident that once we went through the um, submission process to festivals, that it was going to get a good response. And I even, even further knew that uh, within the experiencer community, that it was going to resonate tremendously. And so far, you know, what we've heard from anybody who has been an experiencer is that this finally, there's finally a film out there that tells our side of the story. When this idea was first presented to you, uh, the idea that there are people who have been victim of or have experienced an alien hybrid breeding program. What were your first thoughts? 
it was it was it was actually shocking to be honest with you and i i knew a little bit about it and that's one of the things that i think you know is is all also a good story to tell is that jack was more of the passionate researcher and and had has had an interest since his childhood in this i i was indoctrinated by having experiences of seeing the lights in the sky and uh you know being around the the the, the hauntings as a child so, but I never, I never dove into it. So I never had that kind of uh, a researcher's mentality and could, you know, spout off details about cases. I didn't know any of them, you know, in, in earnest uh, until 2009. And when Jack said, I think this is our story, I want you to work with me. I want you to be the director of this. So I had to start doing homework and I spent about three or four days uh, on Project Camelot's website. This was back in 2009 and just did a deep dive. And I was, I was blown away by what I was starting to see as far as uh, the MK Ultra, and I, I, I think I watched every Dan Burrish video that they had on that website and learned a lot about what I didn't know. But I also took into it a little bit more of this kind of naivete and outsider's curiosity and a little bit of wonder about what this all was that was going on. And I, I've, I've tried to maintain that as much as I can, too, so that I don't go in with an, with an agenda to serve a specific audience. It's more a matter of our target audience that we've had from the very beginning was we want to reach the widest audience possible so that we're not just targeting people who already believe with more and more content that feeds something that they already believe is true. We wanted to position information in a way that it would cause, you know, people in the middle of the bell curve to stop and wonder a little bit. But I, uh, I went through the, the, the process, you know, on, on my own. And then when we were working on the first film, we were introduced to one of the people that's in, in this second film, and her name is Sierra Neblina. And what was fascinating about her story is that uh, she is a lesbian, has never been with a man, and she woke up pregnant one day and carried a baby for three months and then the baby disappeared. And that's a big part of the the storytelling in this film. But when you hear that story, a story like that for the first time from an eyewitness, it really, it stops you in your tracks. And then we st- when we heard that, that story was back in 2011, 2012, that we heard it for the first time. And we said, this would be a great subject for a film this whole idea of these unexplained pregnancies and, you know, women, you know, we started doing research and found out more and more women were having these. A lot of experiences were saying that they were pregnant for usually one term and then boom, they wake up and the baby's gone. So that we knew something was there. And the more research that we did, uh, it led us to believe that uh, there's a lot more people having this experience than we first thought. When, Somebody sits across the table from you and starts telling you that story, um, in addition to being rather heart-wrenching, and I imagine there is a tremendous amount of emotion in the telling of that uh, by the person mm-hmm. who experienced it, uh, but you, you're looking into their eyes. What are you seeing in their eyes? That That's the part where I, you know, I, I think is, you know, I, I understand somebody who who sees evidence. So they see a photo or they see a clip of a video or they hear someone's fantastic story and they, they roll their eyes. And, and I think in our, especially in our, our, our bite-sized world where we take information in the smallest, smallest amounts as possible and make judgments based on that and decisions based on that. And, uh, you know, it's, it's very easy to, to let things just fly by you as opposed to saying, Oh, stop, let's take a look at this one a little bit deeper. 
So when you're sitting across from somebody and you have the opportunity to hear their story in depth, you you have a completely different perspective and a, and a different appreciation. And one of the things that we kept hearing over and over again were similarities and stories about things that were happening to them, what they saw, what they experienced. And in, in one of the interviews uh, with uh, April Malloy, she started, you know, talking, you know, getting a little bit deeper and deeper into her story. And at one point I asked her to like close your eyes and remember, you know, what this experience was like. And, and as she got deeper and deeper into it, she basically was describing that she was and she used these words. She says, I, you know, I was raped by by a, a being and I, that just stunned me. And, you know, she kept talking a little bit. And I, when she paused, I said, I just, I just want clarity here. A, a few seconds ago, you, you used the word rape. That's a strong word. And I wasn't mm-hmm. trying to, like, you know, shame her. Like, right. you know, don't use that word. It was right. more a matter of I was stunned by it. Yeah. So when you have somebody he, who, who shares that, and there's another woman that we spoke with, too, who shared a similar story. Niara Isley shared that as well, that she had a, a, a penetrative penetrative sex experience. And when you hear people talk about these and you see the emotion on their face, the shaking of their voice, the tears in their eyes, and you're looking, you know, into them, you know, for into their eyes for an hour or two and having these discussions, it, it, it really impacts you. So I would encourage people who have never uh, given it too much thought or roll their eyes or pass judgment based on a photo or a, a video that they had seen is to spend time with somebody who's been through something like this to have a better appreciation, not only just for their story, but how that experience impacted them. I want to go back to the story that you started with here about the woman who had never been with a man, woke up one morning, was pregnant, and three months three months later the pregnancy was gone. Um, mm-hmm. do, do you did you get an opportunity to see any medical verification of that? Um, did she have anything that she could show you that indicated there was a pregnancy? So the only thing that she had that uh, she could share with us was a verification from other people. So she had a video of her partner at the time who has since passed away, but she, uh, you know, showed us the video of, of her, her testimony of what had happened that night as well. And so there was verification there. But one of the challenges that we had with this and, you know, because we know this question is going to come up and a lot of people are going to be like, where's the records? Where's the records? Why can't we see this? Why, why isn't it documented? Right. Because most of the times when women are going through that experience, they're not connected to the idea that they had been abducted. It isn't until after there's some sort of a trigger event that happens, whether it's a an, an abduction that they do recall, then they go and have regressions done and they find out that there's been a history with them dating back to when they were a child, being abducted and being for lack of a better word, tagged and monitored with some sort of a device inside their uterus and they're just basically followed until they're fertile and then once they're fertile, they start getting abducted again. But there's, as far as the pregnancies, and usually science has a, a, a you know, doesn't want to be caught red-handed saying, I don't know what it is. So they're never going to tell that to a patient. Usually what they they were told and what they heard from their doctors was that your body absorbed it. You know, and, and that that's kind of like the go-to phrase. But we we did attempt, and I think it's important to let people know because there's like, why isn't this in here? Is it that we did attempt to reach out to physicians? We put an all call out. We we contacted about a half a dozen different people who we were told might be willing to talk, and only one of them responded. 
and had uh, several conversations with this uh, gentleman in Southern California who uh, basically said, I cannot prove that what they had experienced was something that was, uh, you know, uh, alien in nature. He said, but the, the cases that I had seen, they were suspect. I didn't, I couldn't quite understand it. And I wouldn't necessarily use that phrase of the body absorbed it. And it, and a lot of it had to do with kind of uh, the whole idea that there is scarring inside of the uterus. And uh, a couple of the women who were in the film said that they, when they were, uh, had a, an exam years later, doctors would say that you have a tremendous amount of scarring in your uterus. What did you have happen? And their immediate thought is that you've had an abortion. And in, in the two cases, the people that talk about it in the film, they didn't have abortions. And uh, it was more a matter of like, how did you get all these marks? How did you get all this scarring in your uterine, uterus wall? So those are things where, you know, there are those gee whiz moments with the doctors, but they never come out and really say anything in earnest. And the one doctor that we were trying to get to go on the record eventually decided that, you know, this is, you know, I, I think it's best not to to move forward. There was a lot of delays and we were kind of hitting up against the wall. And I was like, you're either in or you're out. We're, we're, we've run out of time. It was one of the last things that we were going to be able to shoot. And then he, he basically decided not to. Um, so that, that, that was a little bit frustrating for us because we really wanted to get somebody to go on the record. But right. as he told us is that no one who is early in their career will ever go on the record with this. And he said, because it'll basically destroy their career or only pigeonhole them and brand them as the UFO doctor, the, the alien right, doctor. Right. And, and that's, they don't want that. But when you've talked to the people that you did that have experienced this, how much of it do they remember without help? Is is it all re- recessive memory, or do they actually have some normal recollection of this experience? Yeah, m- most of the uh, the people that we spoke to had uh, memories that flooded back after there was some sort of a trigger. So it, whether that trigger was a, a conscious awareness of an abduction or a regression that, you know, started the, you know, the avalanche of awareness, it's kind of like, you know, you start the dripping of the water opens right. up or the, you know, you take a peek behind the curtain and you just pull it all the way back and more and more comes, comes, comes through. But in the case of uh, Geraldine Orozco, um, she had no recollection of any abduction experiences uh, in her entire life until 2013. And she was in, I think she was in her late 20s, early 30s at the time, late 20s, I think, when it happened. And it was a conscious, she was consciously aware of being abducted. And she was taken from her bedroom window, passed through the wall of the of the house, was on board a craft, and was shown uh, uh, basically children, hybrid children in addition to several other things, but she does recall seeing the children. And, you know, when once she was uh, conscious and aware of that this had just happened to her, it was, you know, terrifying that, you know, shock and what was it that just happened to me? And it was something that um, she said uh, she didn't know who to talk to and didn't know if she should share anything with her immediate family or extended family because who is going to believe her? And initially she kept it kind of to herself. Said a few months later, she started dating somebody 
and uh, shared with with him what was happening to her uh, had happened to her and and his response was well you know you're very successful in your career someday we may have kids you know uh, it's probably best not to share something like this it could be very disruptive so she buried it but she she continued to have some experiences and it it got to the point where she was eventually engaged to this individual she said 4 years later she it, it it was gnawing at her and she had to go do something about it. So she went and had a regression done. And at the end of that first regression, she, she said she realized that she couldn't bear it anymore. She came home and he, she broke off the relationship with the, her fiance. And then she went back and had another regression a month later, more information was shared. Not only was there more information specific to her experiences when she was younger, dating back to when she was you know five, six years old, she was also connected to electromagnetic energy and had the ability to read it. It was as, as if someone tapped her on the shoulder, flipped a switch and said, now's your, it's your turn to, to be plugged in and know this. So she went from uh, having that one experience that, that shocked her to being uh, activated to a certain extent and, and, and tuned into everything that she had gone through, everything that she had experienced dating back to an earlier age. And not everybody goes through that. Some people have uh, clouded judgment. Some people don't want to deal with what had happened to them. So it, 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 it does vary. When we come back from the break, we're gonna, going to get into what is actually happening. What is this breeding program? Who's who's being affected and why, um, as it's outlined in your documentary? But before we jump to break here, uh, when does the film premiere? It uh, goes live um, on digital platforms on Tuesday. So 12.01 Tuesday morning Eastern Time, the film will be available on digital platforms like uh, uh, Vimeo and iTunes and Apple uh, TV and uh, Amazon, but not Amazon Prime, Amazon Video, uh, Xbox, uh, uh, PlayStation platforms, Vudu. And we're uh, excited to be talking about this because it's something that seems to be, I don't know, John, maybe you've seen the same thing. It seems as though that the floodgates are starting to open in discussions about uh, UFO and extraterrestrial activity. It's, I don't know what's happening culturally, but something's changing. Do you sense the same thing? Yeah, I do. I, I think it's been, you know, it's interesting too, because when, when you look at the, the, the progression that you have to go through of uh, embracing, you know, the, the concept is that first you have, have to acknowledge that, you know, something that you see in the sky is moving in a way that defies, you know, technology that we know, whether it's moving very quickly and coming to a stop, whether it's moving vertically uh, in, in, in coming to an abrupt stop in ways that don't seem possible and covering long distances. So you, that's the first thing that you have to embrace. And then you have to kind of accept the fact that there's intelligent intelligence behind the navigation. And then there's the possibility that that intelligence is connecting with people on earth and potentially abducting them. And then you have to, you know, accept the fact that maybe there's uh, sexual reproduction programs going on. And then you have to take the leap that maybe there's hybrid children going on. And then you have to go from there to say, what would be the reason behind having hybrid children? What would be what's going on? So I think, you know, you go back, you know, to the 40s and we were having a difficult time with the idea of these, these, these things in the sky. 
But we, over the past, you know, 70 years, there's been an acceptance of one, that there's, there's potentially beings visiting us in these, these, these craft and more and more stories are going out about abductions and people are hearing more and more about that. But that's probably as far as it goes with the embracing. Not a lot of people are embracing the idea of hybridization programs or embracing the idea of of hybrid children or of potentially a colonization, which Dr. David Jacobs believes. But I think more and more people are accepting mostly of the, of the craft and that there's some advanced technology accepted. It almost seems like the story shifted away from the little green men. And now it's all about this technology and what we're starting to hear more and more of in, in some of the information that's been released over the last few years, few years, starting with the New York Times report back in December of 2017, is that there's there's technology. There's something going on here that allows them to do what they do, and we've been tracking it. We've monitored it. We've got video. We're showing people. It's being released. So there's 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 seems to be an acceptance of that. So I kind of think, and I, you know, uh, I'm a noob. I'm a, a neophyte when it comes to the research side, but it seems to me like there's more of a desire to be a soft disclosure about the technology more than there is about the intelligence. So I I see some of that that's happening, but the acceptance of it, the information that's being shared is leading to a better, I guess, uh, awareness of the fact that there might be something more to it than we previously believed even two or three years ago. In your experience in finding victims or experiencers, I'm not sure if they consider themselves victims, at least maybe not all of them. Um, is it only women? No, it, it's men and women. And in regards to the word victims, don't backpedal on that because they truly are. Anytime okay. someone's being taken against their will, uh, they're a victim. And and really, then then you become the the, the conversation is okay. So uh, there's a, a I guess you could look at it as more of a uh, ascension from an ascension perspective, that some individuals, once they they connect to the memories, they realize that they had agreed to this. They had a contract to allow this to happen, whether it was from something that happened earlier in their life or through the um, multi-generational, which is a, a common theme that you hear, or through connections to the military, which is another common theme that you hear about people who've had these experiences. And they may realize that, you know, this was an agreement that I had in a, in a previous existence. Maybe I was, you know, sent here to do work and now I'm connecting to it. So some people have those experiences. Other people have experiences that they still can't figure it out and they're horrified by it. Other people like, like Geraldine, I had mentioned earlier, she went through this transformation and she's now, you know, she left her fiance, she quit her, her six figure year job. And she's now helping people who've been through experiences that she's been through because she's been uh, connected to that source, to that energy that she feels like she plays a role now in helping people. But not everybody goes through that. A lot of people go through, you know, it's, it's a struggle. It's trauma. It's something that they have a very difficult time dealing with it. So I, I don't necessarily consider it to be uh, something that's positive. Anytime someone's yeah. being taken against their will, it's not uh, an experience that, uh, that you shake anytime soon. John, from the stories and the discussions that you had in making the film, what, how can you piece together for us what actually happens? What is the actual process here that these folks are undergoing? 
Well, let me just answer the question you'd asked about men too. So men are going through oh, sure. this too. So they're a part of that process. Of so you have uh, uh, ova are being taken from women, sperm are being taken from men. Sometimes there is there's there's you know inter integration of uh, male sperm into uh, uh, well I just back it up to we we have an understanding of uh, sexual reproduction as intercourse and that's how it happens but uh, there are situations where where women have uh, been fertile and they are abducted and a embryo is taken there's some sort of manipulation done uh, uh, you know, outside of their body and then it's reinserted back into their body and they go home and then they uh, gestate the child for three months and then they're abducted again and it's taken. But men and women are both experiencing, you know, each side of that equation. Uh, the men don't go through the actual childbirth part. They're not having that connection. Their, their trauma is that, you know, they're being manipulated in a way to extract sperm. Women are not only being manipulated to extract ova, but they're also having, you know, ova either enhanced in body or ova taken out, something happening uh, to the DNA manipulation and then reinserted, and and then they have to carry carry the fetus for three months. But the process usually starts at a young age, where women in particular are identified and they're monitored until they become fertile. And once they become fertile, they do start having these abduction experiences. And as I mentioned earlier, they don't always remember until they have some sort of a an event that kind of pulls the curtain back or they then have regressions that they see some of the things that are that are happening, have happened to them. But, uh, you know, the typical thing is they get abducted. Uh, they're, they're for the, the initial part, they're monitored. And once they're fertile, they're abducted again. Uh, as I mentioned, the ova is either extracted from the body and then uh, something happens where they're, they reintroduce it to the body. So it may be a matter of they're taken one day and then, um, you know, weeks later they're, they're taken again and it's reinserted. And then they, they just date with the child for a term, uh, uh, one term, uh, one trimester. And then the child is removed at the end of that. Why? Why the trimester? I'm not quite sure. Uh, that's not something that that we've encountered. A, a, a you know that we can have a definitive answer as to what what that is. I think it has probably something to do with it's at a developed enough stage uh, that there is the ability to, to then monitor it. You know. Uh, outside of the, the, the woman's body. But then, then the process is, is there's this tremendous sense of loss for the, for the woman. But usually what will happen to both men and women down the road who have had these experiments happen to them, whether it's you know two or three years or four or five years or 10 or 15 years, they're reintroduced to the children. And usually it happens at, a, at the younger age, but some people have seen the same children multiple times as they have gotten older. But they'll they'll be reintroduced to them by these beings. And one of the things that we heard on more than one occasion, both with the people on 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 in the film, but also in the interviews that we were doing to screen people for the film, is that there is this they want you to connect with them. So they abduct you to meet the child and then ask you to bond with them and connect with them and, and, and give them motherly love. And that's traumatic for a woman to be introduced to that for two reasons. One, because initially they may, you know, rebuff this, but then they feel the connection. 
and uh, they they sense that there is a, a, a genetic connection, a child mother bond there, and then they're they're taken away again. So there's that trauma is reintroduced reintroduced all over again. One of the women in the film. She is uh, silhouetted. She wanted to protect her story, but uh, her identity, but felt her story was very important. She talks about that moment when she's with her child for the first, is introduced to her child. She's a very religious woman, and this was shocking for her to have to go through something like this. And, you know, she says, why would God do something like this? Why would God put this, you know, child in front of me and then take it away? And, and just you, you really sense the, the the trauma that somebody like that goes through. But to answer your question, it, there is that that kind of early age for a woman all the way up to uh, their fertile years and until they're, they can continue to be abducted if they're part of this program until they're um, menopausal and no longer producing ova. I'm not sure we have enough time for a complete answer on this. So if we have to go to break before you do complete the answer, we'll pick it up on the other side. Um, some people believe that there's actually uh, government involvement in a program like this, uh, at least uh, knowledge, if maybe not involvement. Did you get any indication of that? Yeah, we, we had indication that uh, with uh, two of the people in particular that we spoke with, that uh, their abductions included military personnel present when they were there. And, and the two in particular were ones where they were being, for lack of a better word, raped. And there were witnesses there. So the humiliation was, one, they recall being, you know, violated and two that there were witnesses to it so that that in and of itself is is harrowing but yeah. to say that there may be military uh, involvement makes it even more concerning so let's jump to our phone lines this is tj from Rhode island good friend of the show hey tj welcome to the show hey jv good to hear from you and hello to your guest john and my question has to do with the fact and it's a little convoluted so please bear with me this is a i'm getting the impression most of these abductions tend to follow a rather standardized pattern on the part of both the abductor and the abductee and i'm curious to know whether or not john has come across or has at least heard of other types that go back at least to 1958 is the year I'm going to focus on when the pattern was more abduction by opportunity. And two, two examples I would cite is Hans Gustafsson and a friend in Sweden back in 1958. And these were gelatinous type creatures that they stumbled upon uh, returning home from a dance. And they weren't abducted, actually, but they were attempted abductions. And a very famous Antonio Villas-Boas in Brazil, a farmer who was abducted and taken by a helmeted alien of small stature and proceeded to engage in sexual congress a couple of times or so and later developed lesions and was um, diagnosed uh, in a secondary way by a doctor as symptoms of radiation poisoning. And most of this can be found in uh, the Sunday Review Rio de Janeiro, Domingo Ilustrado. And I'm wondering whether or not those occur anymore or whether or not there seems to be a standardization nowadays. Yeah, I, I really don't think it's standardized because there are so many different types 
of uh, scenarios that we've heard about. And the, uh, the they they include. Uh, I'm getting a big echo here. Is that any better? We don't hear yeah, the echo better. here. We don't hear the echo here. But go ahead. Okay, that's better now. Thank you. Um, so the the reason why I say that is because one of the people that we spoke with uh, was uh, Robert Fullington, and uh, his story is an abduction story, and it is a. Um, a reproduction story, but not in the same sense of what we know as, uh, you know, sexual reproduction. His experience was more about shared consciousness, and uh, his abduction experience included being present when his consciousness was removed, and he said, I could vis- visibly see myself sitting in a chair. I could see myself ac- from across the room. I wasn't in my body. I was watching my body being operated on. He said, I could see that my brain was being exposed. And he says, but I was on the other side of the room. He was also part of his abduction process was he was shown that um, there were clones being made of of these these tall grays and they were in these suspended tubes and that there was shared consciousness experiments going on. And he says he recalls one time he remembers waking up inside of one of these these tubes and regaining, you know, having regained his consciousness and he's looking down at his hands and he said, they weren't my hands. He said, these these were the hands of the beings. And he said, it really freaked me out. And when the, when the beings outside of the tube realized that he was uh, conscious and seeing this, they basically, you know, kind of shut him down. So I guess, you know, the exposure that I've had in this, in the different interviews that we've had is that there are a variety of different agendas that are going on right now. The big question is for what purpose? And that's something that uh, we don't, we don't know the, the answer to. And, and I will be the first to say, we don't purport to know the answers to anything. What we want to do is present information that encourages people to do more research, to find something that resonates with them. We explore in our third film, three different paradigms, the religious paradigm, the biblical narrative, the uh, ascension paradigm, and the colonization paradigm. Three very different paradigms but very, very uh, similar belief systems around abductions. Our guest tonight, John Sumpel, is the producer-director of a film, documentary film called Extraordinary, The Seating, which uh, actually premieres or debuts or is available to be seen anyway on September 2nd. That's the date, right, John? It's the 2nd? September 2nd at midnight Eastern time, uh, but technically 12.01 on the 3rd. Technically the 3rd. Okay. Um, As you were talking with people and doing research for this film, as you were putting it all together, did you find anybody who had memories of or claimed to be one of the offspring of any of this? Yeah, well, that was part of what we wanted to do is in this story is to talk to people who would consider themselves to be hybrids. And uh, in another thing that we discovered through the course of the film in interviewing uh, April uh, Malloy is that she believes that uh, the uh, her her abductions led to the birth of her her second child, her son. Um, I guess technically her third child, but second child with her current husband. But she um, she said that uh, there was an intervention and that uh, she had had uh, several abductions. Once she got regressed, she found that she had, had several abductions and a couple of them involved penetrative sex. And that um, 
the the final abduction i think that she said she had she recalls being present on a craft lying on a table uh something was happening to her the lower half of her body she remembers small grays taller grays and 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 there was there was uh i don't remember if it was nordics or there was somebody in the room that was basically kind of like running the show with what was going on with her and then uh, she got a telepathic message that basically said you're this one's you know you'll be able to keep this one I'm paraphrasing that, but Mm -hmm. it was basically this message that this one's yours to keep. And she remembers waking up and, you know, that this thought in her head was baby conceived and there was blood, a small spot of blood on her, on her body and on her pillow or on her, on her sheets. And, um, she was able to keep the child. She was pregnant this time after having several miscarriages over the course of a two year period. And, um, she uh, said that her pregnancy was very different that time, and her 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 son, who's now three and a half years old, going on four, is uh, she considers him to be quite special and feels that there was. And she she says, I don't believe that he's like this, you know, a alien, you know, with me type of thing. She says, I think that my husband and I were trying, and they intervened when the ova was impregnated and and made sure that it they did something but the, the her son is very different very unique very uh tuned in i guess you could say he he has said some pretty profound things and anticipate things before they happen and he just happens to spend a lot of time looking at the sky walking out of the house uh he always wants to be outside and when he goes outside he he, he looks to the sky so if the the product, the offspring of this program, are not necessarily walking among us. Uh, where are they going? Are they are they taking them to a home planet, to, for lack of a better phrase? I think it's a combination of two. I I would say, based on the interviews that we've done and and the people that we've talked to, that they are walking amongst us. Uh, there is an integration to a certain extent. For what end? Don't know. But there's also a. a children that can't survive on this planet for whatever reason and they're being uh, again for lack of a better word cultivated off planet so i think it's a combination of the two and if you were to talk to the dr jacobs uh, david jacobs crowd in the colonization they have a strong belief that uh, they're here to replace us so that's 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 the agenda that he believes. So my next my next question was going to be what was the purpose? What's the uh, goal of all of this? And I think you just said something that might, that should send shivers down all of our spines. Yeah, the colonization is the the scary end game. So the opposite of that is the ascension believes that people mm-hmm. uh, there are a lot of people believe that they're here to uh, basically kind of take us you know, to the next level, to connect us to consciousness, to to raise our vibration so that we exist as, you know, galactic brothers and sisters in a way that we never have before. That's comforting. You know, that's definitely something that if you believe that, and, and there are a lot of people who do, and there's a lot of people who say they've connected to the energy that's out there. There's a lot of people who are doing work on on this planet who say that they're, they're hybrids and they've been sent here to help, you know, raise the vibration of humanity to the next level. So, but then you have a lot of people who have done research and said uh, the opposite seems to be just as likely, or when I, we, we interviewed Dr. Jacobs for the, um, 
for her third film. And one of the things that uh, he he has said is that uh, when we talked to him on the phone screening, he said, well, I can tell you right now, John, that uh, everybody else is wrong and I'm right. They're here for one reason, one reason only, colonization. Hmm. You talk with nine people uh, for the documentary. Do we have a sense, though, of how uh, widespread this actually is beyond the folks that you spoke to? Well, we spoke to, I mean, it's, this is a, obviously a very small sample size, but, you know, we screened uh, 30 people. We wound up with the people that we had in the film, but we also talked to quite a few people um, and we've received tons of messages. And that's one of the reasons why we decided to make this film after the first film was on Netflix. We had over 700 messages of people who said they've had experiences and that they were so glad that, you know, they were getting the attention and they made them feel that they're not crazy. Uh, and talking to, um, regression therapists, they share with us, uh, that this is a very common story. Talk to MUFON investigators. They have plenty of investigations where there are unexplained pregnancies that, that you know, woman's pregnant and for three months and then the baby disappears. And, and women know their bodies. And that's something that's very important is that they know when something is unusual. And when they go to a doctor and the doctor tries to explain it away, what are they supposed to do? They're, 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 they know that something was different, but yet they're being told that it's in some scientific terms that it was your body absorbing it, that, it, that it's not what you think it might have been. The victims that you talk to for the documentary are obviously contemporary examples of this phenomenon, but do we have a sense of how far back this goes? Well, you know, we, in talking with different people, um, both on the research, research side, expert side, and also to the individuals that we interviewed and research that we've done on other uh, people's stories, that some people believe that this goes far, far back from, you know, we have like this, the modern era began, uh, you know, with Roswell in the late 40s. But uh, there, there's evidence, documented evidence that goes back to turn of the century, but then you have all the 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 the, the imagery, the uh, the cave paintings, the hieroglyphics, the different. Uh, I've been spending a lot of time in Central and South America over the last year, and spent a lot of time at different archaeological sites and the stories that are told. Uh, and passed down through oral history. And every single place that I went to, I you know, pulled aside the guide that I was with and said, can you tell me about the relationship with the indigenous people to the sky people? And every single one of them said that there is an oral history and a connection to the sky people. So what does that mean? You know, they, they, they always recorded what they saw, what they experienced. They had no concept of what was beyond what they could see with their eyes in the sky. They didn't know the vastness of the universe. They just recorded and reported what they saw. So you have these, uh, these cave uh, paintings, you have these hieroglyphics, you have these estrellas, estellas in, uh, in central, uh, in, in Mesopotamia and South America that depict, you know, beings from the sky and are they gods are they uh, angels are they visitors from somewhere else so yeah there this this could go back tens of thousands of years and some some say there are actually accounts of this in the bible it um you know told in a different mm -hmm. way but uh, certainly with the same uh, type of uh, information yes and 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 i'm not a student of the bible so i i can't you know uh, 
point to any specific places, but I do know that there are mentions of the right. of the fact that there was there were there are things from above that uh, you know, and what were they? And there's a huge argument. You know, that's the, one of the narratives that we talk about in the third film is the biblical narrative. So, you have the big biblical, you have the um, the you have the uh, the ascension, which is kind of like their polar opposites. Then you have colonization. Three very very different belief systems as far as what the end game is, but all three of those paradigms believe in the existence of uh, uh, intelligent life piloting, you know, craft, abducting people, and having hybridization experiments, and that there are indeed um, uh, hybrid children, but they all believe in a completely different outcome. You uh, mentioned the third film. Can you give us a little bit more information about what that's going to be about? I know you ha- the second one hasn't even quite hit yet, but, um, sure, you know, sure. you've whet our appetite on that. Now, what we're trying to do with the three films, when we made the first film, we we weren't looking at it as a trilogy, but we realized that where the, the first film left off was just starting to talk about hybridization in, in, in children, and that that's a big part of what we learned through the course of making that first film. We wanted to continue it in, in the second film. So the second film is more of an emotional journey to truly understand that the people that are having these experiences are going through trauma, and that we should really try to understand that just because we haven't experienced it doesn't mean it's true, not true. And if people are having PTSD and they're having, you know, emotional issues as a result of what they've been through, who are we to question what they've been through? They've been through something. Do we know what it is? Can we explain it in a tangible way? No, we can't. But they've been through something that we need to show a little bit more empathy and compassion about. So that's a big message in this film. And another message in the film is that we we, we care enough that uh, uh, we we encourage people to tell their stories and find their their community and tribe and others who can help them realize what they've been through. But the third film, we really want to ex- take that a little bit further, do a little bit of a deeper dive on the historical perspective to show that this has been in- indeed happening for tens of thousands of years, based on you know the evidence that is out there explore those three paradigms. And then we also interviewed whistleblowers who were involved in the government and to, to, so their connection to these stories and their, uh, the telling of, um, their experiences as military personnel and what they encountered during their, their time in the military. And, you know, when you hear these people, they have no reason to lie. <laughs> they're telling their stories that, you know, they're the Dan Sherman stories is, is, is he's been able to share quite a bit of his story. Clifford Stone shares an awful lot of his story. And uh, we, we have Lynn Buchanan as well, who was part of the Remote Viewer program, and, and he shares his story and, and the connections to military, government, and uh, the awareness and involvement of, of, of ETs. Is there any value? I know each of the films is uh, standalone, even though it is a trilogy, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but is there any value in watching them in sequence? Really what we wanted to do to understand who our target audience is, and this started from the very beginning. We had a lot of debates in the first film about where do we start. And I felt, again, coming from that kind of outsider looking in perspective, is that we would alienate a large swath of people if we went right to hybrid children. Because it would be too much, too fast and overwhelming to people who are just starting the journey, just dipping their toe in the water. And, and, and I can connect with that because I, after the screening of the first film back in 2013, um, 
at a film festival, I had a fr- good friend of mine who who pulled me aside a couple of days later and said, I really need to think through this before I had this conversation with you because when the film was over, I was just flabbergasted. I didn't know how to handle I didn't. I had to process this before I could have this conversation with you. What she said to me is that I've never held a place in my mind. This is a very intelligent woman. She said, I never had a place in my mind for this as being something that could potentially be real. I always thought it was science fiction. I always thought it was something that you would see on TV and in the movies, but I never thought it was real. So really that, that, that kind of stuck with me as something that's like, we want to make sure that we present this information in a way that it does not just appeal to a, uh, a segment that already believes. So our, our target audience has always been the center of the bell curve as opposed to the fringes. We want to make sure that this is digestible. So we wanted to take people through a journey over the course of these three films that takes them from, you know, the lights in the sky to uh, abduction, to hybridization programs, to children, to uh, historical perspective, to potential outcomes and why this is happening, uh, to potentially the government being involved and why they're involved and why they're protecting us, to getting us all thinking about what does it all mean to get us to the point where what if we're in a metaphysical multiverse reality that we can't even begin to comprehend? Because when disclosure happens, if it indeed happens in our lifetime, it's going to be transformational. So let's get the population thinking about where that takes us in a logical progression that, that you know, we slowly take them through that process over the course of three films so that when, uh, you, you know, you may not have believed it, you might start questioning it a little bit deeper. And we really want to encourage people to um, have conversations. We'd love to have people have watch parties and, you know, pull somebody in that you think might be uh, open to this. But one other thing I think is important is that this film has screened at a handful of film festivals, and we have done screeners for uh, different people to uh, uh, see the film and and comment about the film and have the opportunity to, to, to do promotion for it. But it's been a triggering event for a lot of people. And I, I've, th- this is something that I anticipated was going to happen, that it resonates with people in such a way that they, it is triggering experiences that there were like, especially women who have said, wow, this now that I've seen this film, it's making me question something that happened to me in my past. And I, it, it, had not, it has just like been a two by four. We've had a, a dozen women tell us that uh, easily over the course of the, the, the screenings that we've done uh, and, and shared. So we're, we're thinking that this will help, help people start conversations. John, we're just out of time. Where can people go to see a trailer, uh, maybe get more information, or even contact you if they want to share a story of their own? Yeah, the best way to do that is uh, on our, our the film's website, extraordinarytheseating.com. There's a trailer there. There's a video for the music video uh, of a single, a musical song that's at the end of the film in the, in the closing credits. There is uh, contact information there and also uh, ways that you can connect to where it's going to be, uh, you know, see it on the different platforms when it's available uh, next Tuesday. Great, John. Thanks for your time. Thank you so much for having me. Really appreciate it. Oh, Ryan, this is Labor Day weekend, right? Am I right? <laughs> yes. Am I, yes. I, my dates are all messed up. As we get uh, ready to head into a uh, Labor Day weekend, hope everybody has uh, plans to enjoy it. Uh, I hope the folks that are in Florida in the path of what looks to be uh, a rather menacing hurricane are doing the right thing, evacuating when necessary, taking the right precautions. 
Uh, don't forget, tomorrow night is a best of program. Monday, we'll be back with Rob Young, author and adventurer. We'll be talking about poisons from the jungle, cloud warriors of Peru, and his own paranormal experiences. That, that'll kick off next week. It's Beyond Reality Radio. Thanks for being here, everybody. We'll see you next week. Beyond Reality Radio is hosted by Jason Hawes and J.V. Johnson and produced by Alexandria Johnson and Slick Eddie Edwards for Intercom Radio. Beyond Reality Radio is distributed by Westwood One Radio Networks. Stop by our Facebook page and say hello. Follow the hosts on Facebook as well. For Jason Hawes, follow at JasonHawes.Taps. For J.V. Johnson, follow at JVJParanormal. If you'd like to be a guest on Beyond Reality Radio or you have a suggestion for a guest, contact Slick Eddie Edwards at SlickEddieEdwards at gmail.com. Be sure to visit our chat room as well at beyondrealityradio.com. Thanks for listening.